Welcome back to Paris Lesbos. And today we have a very intriguing and rather chatty woman to do for our protagonist. But uh, first, some content warnings for child sexual abuse and possible incest. Already off to a great start, I see. But on to the episode. To have been famous for 40 years and then forgotten for the next 50 is better than being famous for 15 minutes, wouldn't you agree? Either way, it was the case for Ala Nazimova, an actress of the stage and silent screen who was heralded as the first modern actress in America and as the new Eleonora Dusa, the Italian actress who was the rival of Sarah Bernhardt, if you recall from Bernhardt's episode. And yet, I'd wager most today haven't heard of Ala Nazimova, Certainly, finding a biography of her was difficult. You're more likely to hear of her industry contemporaries, Garbo, Dietrich, and Valentino. Or perhaps you've come across mention of her producing an all-gay version of Oscar Wilde's Salome. Excuse me, what? You will have to tell me more. We will. But first, we begin, as always, at the start, and this time it takes us to the Imperial Russian Empire. Nazimova would later say that her heart was born in a deep shadow. That shadow turned out to be her father, who was the dud of the family. He did miserably low-paid jobs, and while he tried to invent useful items like artificial ice and Medicaid soap, he never got anything to work. Being a Jew in 1800s Imperial Russia did not help. Though there wasn't large-scale violence against Jewish people at this time in 1872, anti-Semitism was widespread, and most Jews were confined to a strip of modern Ukraine, then called the Pale of Settlement. The only reason Nazimova's father was out and about was because of his university degree and because he didn't look like a stereotypical Jew, namely he had sandy blonde hair and blue eyes. He eventually married the Jewish 15-year-old daughter of a much richer man, to his new father-in-law's consternation, and within a year started insulting her and occasionally hitting her. Divorce was not an option because that would make Nazimova's now-pregnant mother a social outcast. Instead, with the excuse of the father's tuberculosis, the new family moved away from the in-laws to Crimea, which has a mild climate like the French Riviera. Now, supposedly Alla's unhappy mother took a lover, got pregnant for the third time by who knows which man, tried every peasant recipe for abortion, which failed, and then gave birth to her third child and second daughter in June 1879. Said third child apparently looked more like her husband than her lover, because of the blue eyes mixed with the mother's black hair. They named the girl Miriam Edez Adelaida Leventon, but her mother called her Ella for short. Now, please take all of that with a grain of salt, because the biographer was working off of the unfinished autobiography that Ella wrote in Middle Age, and she herself admitted to tweaking things over time. Aside from family troubles, to put it mildly, Russia at large had trouble. Tsar Alexander II, the man who freed the serfs and introduced an open trial by jury system to the courts, 
was assassinated by radicals who did not think he had gone far enough. Now, this affects toddler Ellen Azimova because one Jewish woman had a minor role in the plot. So the new administration threw all Jews in with the depiction of the radicals as murderers and moneylenders who exploited the poor. Classic. Anytime there's like one Jewish person, I'm sure there's other marginalized groups where this is true. It's like, ah, well, if there's one of them, it means all of them were like that and all Jews in the whole group are like that. Yeah, in this case, though, it ties into the fact that even though the serfs were free and no longer subjected to indignities like being forced to stand as living naked statues in their master's gardens, they now had to pay high land taxes for their farms. It's rather like how sharecropping arose after slavery ended in the U.S. So you've got society mixing suffering poor people and depictions of an already disliked minority preying upon them further. This is where the pogroms flare to life. For those who don't know, the pogroms were riots that destroyed homes, businesses, and people. If you ever watched the film An American Tale when growing up, it opens with a scene of a pogrom. In light of this reality, Ella's father moved them all to Switzerland in 1882, but did not tell his children that they were Jewish because he thought they were too young. You do hear about this happening kind of in different times in history, that parents will kind of shield their children from that sort of knowledge. During the Holocaust, I know some kids had completely forgotten their families and maybe had never been taught that they were Jewish to be hidden and only were discovered after uh, World War II was won because they were people would sing Jewish prayers to them and they would respond in the traditional ways. It sounds kind of brutal, but it makes sense. In this case, they would stay in Switzerland for three years. As her parents were educated, her first language was French, soon followed by German, because you see many educated Russians saw French as superior to their own language. By the time she started kindergarten, Nazimova showed a talent for acrobatics and singing. Her father, on the other hand, was laughed out of the Polytechnic Institute, which increased the frequency of screaming in Russian and beatings in the household. Oh, lovely. Now, as the story goes, Nazimova's father was abusive to her, possibly sexually. Her niece would adamantly deny this, but said niece also changed her own father's name and profession from what is stated in census records, and went on to blame Eva Logalian's friendship with Nazimova for any talk of her aunt being gay. So I'd say that woman's blinders are thoroughly on for anything that didn't fit her ideas. There are certainly stories of Nazimova's father beating his son, the eldest, over missing piano practice, and of him slapping Nazimova, who also got into physical fights with her sister, over Ala being their mother's favorite. So that's a charming household. Oh yeah, it would end with her parents divorcing in Switzerland, and her mother left without the children, probably because she had another lover. Around this time, her father announced they were returning to Russia because his old pharmacy was still doing well, and the town had been spared because few Jews ever lived there. However, all the children were parceled out to their father's siblings. The eldest two went to one brother, and Alla went to another. Soon after her arrival at her uncle's, she had typhus, then chickenpox, and then measles. 
In fact, she spent her sixth birthday in 1885 quarantined in a darkened room. So, like, why is she getting all these diseases? Like, is is this some sort of neglect thing? Is she is her immune system compromised for some reason? We don't exactly know. I just feel like there is some problem here. Oh, undoubtedly, because after her father's pharmacy had been burnt to the ground and he took her and her siblings back to Zurich while a new one was built, uh, he would slap her for asking where their mother is. Yeah, so continues to be a great guy. And then once back in Switzerland, he actually left them all with a German couple whose second son, a 15-year-old Otto, turned out to be insane. He talked of killing Tsar Alexander III, would slash himself with a knife to prove he could show no pain, and at one point hung Nazimova by her ankles from a branch briefly as an initiation to his conspiracies. I'm sorry, what? It gets worse. And that also wasn't the only first initiation, there were several others. But after that one, the absurd, dangerous tests kind of continue. And probably because of all the weirdness she'd put up with till then, she didn't question when the next supposed test, uh, he asked her to lie on the ground with her eyes closed before he pulled up her skirt and started to rape her before an epileptic fit quickly interrupted him. And she was only about seven or eight at this point. Yeah, so that sounds pretty traumatizing. Yeah, and then for some damned reason, she agreed not to tell anyone, but her screams for help the next several nights woke his sister, whom she shared a room with. Wow, so did, like, he get removed from that situation, or? No. No. Oof. I'm not even sure if anyone ever actually finds out, or if they just... I mean, that is the thing with a lot of, like, abuse. There's a lot of shame for the people who are abused, so... I can totally see her just not wanting to talk about it. Yeah, but also for some reason, despite like his parents knowing about all the conspiracy talk and so forth, no one thought to send him to any sort of mental facility for help or nurses or anything. Although, as we've discussed on the on the podcast previously, mental health back then was hit or miss at best, and. I can see them not wanting their their beautiful, beloved son to go to some horrible institution, because even though he clearly needs help, is he actually going to get help, or is he just going to be, like, you know, oppressed? True, but on the other hand, he wouldn't be slashing himself with a knife or hurting anyone else. Yeah, you would no, hope. no good decisions here. But back to Nazimova. In 1887, her siblings are sent away to boarding school for her sister and a military academy for her brother, but she is still left at this German couple's house because her father hasn't decided her future yet. Now, hasn't decided her future yet? That sounds a bit controlling. I mean, it reminds me of Romaine Brooks's mother. If you remember how her mother at one point was like, oh, she'll become a singer, or another, she should go off to this finishing school to learn to be a society wife, or at one point throwing her into a Catholic school because she might become a nun. Mm-hmm. It sounds like the family, and I guess the father, is like trying to help the children succeed, but not actually asking them what success looks like to them. Did parents actually do that back then? 
<laughs> I imagine sometimes. Anyway, the couple's daughter proceeded to tell Nazimova in euphemisms and hints about sex and how unmarried girls who ended up with bastards were whores and usually killed by their families. Charming. Great way to get introduced to this. So the continuing to live there was for another two years till her father, who now had some money, brought her back to the Crimea and informed her she was to finally study Russian. And quite frankly, I will be damned if this kid doesn't end up speaking Russian with a Swiss accent. Yeah, it's a, a weird way of growing up. It also happened on the train ride back that Nazimova found out she was Jewish because she overheard her father speaking Yiddish, to which she responded by spouting some anti-Semitic rhetoric. Her father then hit her across the mouth and angrily told her they were both Jewish, and she was spouting nonsense. She was very confused and emotionally hurt by the news. There was also the news her mother now lived a few streets over, but she was still forbidden from seeing and speaking of her, and her father had remarried and had a newborn son, Alla's younger half-brother. So a lot of news for a ten-year-old. Yeah, congratulations, you're part of a minority and also you can't see your mother. And by the way, I started a new family, so here's your new brother and stepmother. Her father now had her taking violin lessons because it turned out she had an ear for music. He'd decided that she should tour the world as a violinist. Now, the story goes that after she mistook a woman in the audience of a violin contest for her mother, her father beat her and then kissed her, which led to her stepmother kicking him in the stomach, but also saying, Now I see. An apple never falls far from the tree. Like mother, like daughter. Shilka. I have proudly mispronounced that, but I can't even tell if it's Russian or Yiddish, okay? But essentially... Her stepmother blamed Allah for her father's actions. There was then a knockdown, drag-out fight. Her stepmother ended up bedridden for a week, and Nazimova had a broken arm. The result, really, was that her stepmother refused to speak to her for years afterward. Oof. So that's an escalation, I feel like. I mean, things were already bad, but oof. I would love to say it gets better. It is not for quite a while. In 1891, Nazimova was 12 years old and finally old enough to go to the Imperial Gymnasium for school. An exclusive place, as per her father's wishes, of course. Of course. It was only because the principal constantly sent notes of disapproval to her father over the state of her shoes, teeth, and so forth, that she got new shoes to replace holy ones, her cavities filled, and glasses to deal with her nearsightedness. Naturally, she hated wearing glasses. She thought they made her look ugly. And, to be honest, same. Excuse you, glasses are very important. True, but we have contact lenses now. And anyway, I think that little description at least somewhat answers your question about why she was so sick frequently, because the whole shoes, teeth, and stuff does speak to neglect. We've seen a lot of, like, the big violent outbursts, but this is a little hint about the kind of day-to-day. Soon, her brother came for a visit from the military academy, but there was no word from her sister, 
whom their father decided would be an opera singer. Oh, how nice of him to decide it. Her brother did not help Nazimova with the talk of where babies like their half-siblings come from. Instead, a servant tried to explain, but that explanation was basically, husbands do a trick to their wives without them realizing it, and nine months later, babies emerge from their belly, and that's why there's so many screaming brats in Russia. Charming. For Russia at this time and several decades before, I know a lot of things that would horrify you, and I think there's a reason why they're known for downing so much vodka. For several years after this, Nazimova had a recurring nightmare of howling infants erupting from her navel, and at 13, she concluded that marriage was no less risky than prostitution. And this is what comes from not having comprehensive sex education. Now, Nazimova had creative pursuits by now as well, writing stories and poetry with a friend and having photos for the book taken of them draped in sheets and nothing else. When the photography studio's bill came to her father, he refused to pay, and her sister found the photos and called them shocking and vulgar. Their father said that since she thought she was an actress now, that meant she was a whore and a slut, and he proceeded to drag her through the courtyard and physically kicked her out into the street while threatening to kill her if she came back. This, despite the fact that he admired the great actresses Sarah Bernhardt and Eleanor Dusa. Can we say hypocrisy, anyone? Yeah, well, see, they were successful, whereas Ala wasn't yet. And as we all know, you have to be just birthed, fully formed, uh, like Venus, to be successful. You're neglecting Athena. Oh, true, true, true. Now, during this incident, her stepmother finally spoke to her after years and brought her back after Nazimova spent hours wandering the streets in a downpour. She received another beating with her father's cane for the episode. The next day, he damn near choked to death on his own vomit during a stroke, and it resulted in a personality change. Instead of screaming at and beating everyone, he started wandering the streets and talking to strangers. Wild. I mean, it sounds like he's improving at least, but that is quite the change. The opposite, one could say, of when Henry VIII got a concussion. Now, Nazimova was sent off to an all-girls boarding school in 1894 at the age of 15. She loved the freedom of being out of her father's house, but as the only non-Catholic, she was nicknamed the Antichrist. Okay. However, this time the teasing wasn't cruel, and she became the class clown. I love this recurring pattern of women on this podcast being the class clown. It's like, even as they're younger, they have this sense that they need the spotlight, they crave the attention, and they know how to hold the attention. Are you saying Romaine Brooks could have made an excellent actress if she didn't become a painter? I mean, who's to say, but if we get a time machine? Now, for Nazimova, she realized that acting out would not result in beatings like it had at home, so she became a rebel. For instance, when teachers discovered she had banned books in her room, she responded with her own lecture to them on the stupidity of censorship. Go, Ala, that is great. A lecture that places like YouTube could probably deal with having. Mm -hmm. After the dorms burned down due to a kitchen fire, Nazimova had to board with a widow and her two daughters nearby. Can I just say this is the second, like, fire that changes things in one podcast? What is up here? 
fate, karma, the devil wanting his due. Who's to say? So, so she's boarding with his mother and two daughters. What happens? Yeah, lucky for her, both of the daughters who were in their mid-twenties were involved in amateur theatrics. Soon, Ella was neglecting her homework to eavesdrop on the rehearsals and developed a crush on the younger of the sisters, namely Natalie's voice. Natalie was also the one who brought her along backstage for one of their performances. Now, by the time of summer vacation, her father was in a sanatorium for his health. So Nazimova asked her new legal guardian, a friend of the family, for permission to attend drama school. He refused and told her to wait a year and ask again when she was older. During this time, she also underwent a transformation, throwing off her father's comments that she was ugly and becoming quite popular at dances. It turned out that her father had exited her life. Ill health prevented him from even writing to or acknowledging any of his children. This would, of course, be a blessing in this case. By her 17th birthday in 1896, she was attending the Philharmonic School in Moscow as its only Jewish student and set about becoming an actress. This is where her unfinished autobiography ends. So it's the end of the first act. Now we're on our own. What does she do next? The first thing you learned was to come out of your corset. Ooh, Take it scandalous. Off. Sorry. I've... It gets worse. Take it off and throw it out the window. You didn't need it anymore as your grandmother gasped and clutched her pearls. Now, the actual learning involved diction, singing, dancing, fencing, calisthenics, and, of course, acting. Nazimova's father died that fall, either from syphilis or another stroke. Now, initially, the will stated that most of his estate would go to the children of his first wife, which infuriated his second wife and younger two sons, who contested it. The second wife was then awarded the bulk of the estate after a moneylender tried to save the inheritance by loaning it out on interest. That money never came back, so Ella was now poor. Oof, so does she have to drop out of drama school, or what's her situation? Instead, she ends up cleaning slums and at one point stood in front of a tapestry as a guy masturbated in front of her. Thus was the descent into prostitution. If it's not one thing, it's another. And it was as her sister and father had always lectured her. Then Ala went and basically got a sugar daddy at the advice of one of her classmates. With the money, she moved out of the slums to a nice boarding house near the school. Things started to look up a bit by then, probably helped by a crush on another student, Olga, who never returned her affections but remained a friend. That sounds like a fun way to pass the time, in between all of that other stuff. Now, rather than getting recommended for any leading roles for productions, Nazimova started out as an extra. She would graduate in 1898 and struggle to make a breakthrough role. However, she did get married in 1899 to a poor drama student. There was no wedding night. So I'm taking it that this is more of a career move marriage rather than a fall in love type of marriage. Probably the events around why it happened are confusing. It may have been for protection as being a Jew in the Russian theater was precarious and being an unregistered prostitute was just as fraught. 
That aside, Nazimova and her husband basically went their separate ways after the Met Bridge night, but they didn't divorce until the 1920s. In the world of theater, there was changing of stock companies, touring, and on occasion, Cossack troops stormed the theater to shut down a play. Oh, you know, you normal theater things. Now, the break came when the company got through the legal documentation to leave Russia and tour Europe. They started in Berlin in the fall of 1904, where they performed the play The Chosen People. It was a choice that would have gotten Nazimova thrown out of the theater back in Russia, because it was a study of Russian anti-Semitism, which would have brought scrutiny to our actress. They would also perform the play in London, which then opened the door to New York City. By now, Nazimova was gaining attention as an actress and had upstaged the others during performances. That being said, the play was still performed in Russian, no matter the location of the company. So I imagine that would kind of limit their scope and who has access to seeing it. Yeah, a whole lot of émergés. After that, the head of the theater troupe met Emma Goldman, an anarchist, journalist, and nurse who helped find funding for their next productions and slept with Nazimova. Yes, a girlfriend. And she's Jewish. This is how we arrive at 1906, bringing our actress to Broadway in the Ibsen play Hedda Gabler with a different company. At 27, Nazimova had rushed to learn English in five months for the role. It was an astounding success, the likes of which a foreign actress would not see again until Garbo arrived in the 1920s for her first American film. This is where everything truly takes off, much to Nazimova's delight, as she wanted to be famous. Wow, that <laughs> works out better for her than Garbo, I guess. With this first success, she performed two more Ibsen plays. When she went on tour later with them, she ended up making about $4 million. Oof, all right. With that money, she bought a house on six acres in upstate New York, which seems to be a running theme with our Broadway stage actresses on this podcast. <laughs> That's good to have an escape in the midst of the city. Yeah, this one had an apple orchard, a rose garden, a live-in maid, and horses. Sounds beautiful. And it's here that she gets a pleading letter from her sister, who's still in Russia. Turns out Nazimova's brother-in-law was dead after gambling away all his wife's inheritance, and her sister was now destitute with two small children. Their brother, meanwhile, had moved to Berlin and was struggling financially with his own family, so he couldn't help. Ah, uh, how the turntables, Pixie. Yeah, seriously. His sister is like... Ah, uh, you're gonna end up a prostitute on the streets, and here she is, comes crawling back. Yes, to the sister who now books her and her children passage over to New York and puts them up at her new place. In fact, in Nazimova's response, she wrote, You are the only family I have. Why wouldn't I be good to you? Of course, her sister was still broken and unemployed, so Alla ended up paying for everything, including her niece and nephew's education. Of course, this feeling would not always last. Nazimova acknowledged years later to her sister, You do not understand my world and interest, dear. This is the trouble and always was. By then, her sister would be more jealous than grateful. 
A few years later, there's talk of Charles Froman taking Nazimova from the Schubert Theatre Company. If Froman's name sounds familiar, he popped up extensively in our Maud Adams episode, as he was her main manager for her career. Now, this was an odd rumor considering Nazimova skyrocketed on Ibsen plays and Froman didn't like Ibsen. He once said, Americans have not felt the corroding touch of decadence. There is no real taste among us for the erotic and the decadent. What's in those Ibsen plays? Ibsen's works inspired blasphemous adoration and hysterical abuse. One society hostess would greet you at the door saying, you are politely requested not to mention Mr. Ibsen's new play. I imagine this is a thinly veiled threat of talk about it and you're banned. Basically, his works dealt with societal taboos and hypocrisy. For instance, Hedda Gabler involves the lead woman burning her father's rival's manuscripts, driving the rival to suicide in a brothel, then to compound the scandal doing the same in her own house, all with a dash of jealousy over the influence the rival's wife exerts on him. For the Victorians, this was a no-no. Yeah, that's a lot. Um, so with that background, back to Froman. Yes, who noted by 1911 that the public had started to develop a taste for what was termed the sex conflict, basically Ibsen-style stuff. Now, the person to help bring Nazimova to Froman was Bessie Marbury, who you may remember from the Dia Acosta episode, and yes, this is how Nazimova meets Mercedes. Also, I just want to point out for fun here that in Marbury and Nazimova's time, the term bachelor girl was used for career-minded women with no focus on getting married or having affairs with men. That and around this time, Nazimova hinted about this in a lecture at Yale, saying, here you have to be very conventional in lovemaking, as opposed to 1890s Russia, where there was a gay and sapphic subculture, and a bisexual Grand Duke had flings at a bathhouse and wrote about it in his journals. But back to New York. With Froman, Nazimova performed plays like The Marionettes, where she was a marquise who won back an indifferent husband by pretending to be indifferent to him. Somehow this was a Broadway success, so I assume the play is more interesting than its description. Meanwhile, in the lead-up to World War I, Alla met the actor Charles Bryant, who would become her beard in Hollywood until he caused a scandal by eloping to actually marry another actress. Uh, that's a complicated situation. It gets more complicated once you get to Hollywood. Now, just like her actual marriage, Nazimova never explained why she decided to create a fake relationship. But considering how the public of early film days reacted to unmarried stars running around, it probably was for publicity cover more than anything else. Though I should note there are a few rumors of one-night stands with random men in the acting business, but there's few details compared to the women. So she might have been into men? I have severe doubts based off of what I know of child sexual abuse survivors and how this one biographer describes her describes her time basically being a sugar baby as if those were actual relationships when it was closer to prostitution. Mm. So it's more she had relationships with men when it was advantageous to her, but maybe these other rumors are just rumors. Maybe, or maybe she wanted something. Who knows? 
Who knows? And we can never really know. But we know she liked women. We do know that. But anyway, we gotta get through World War I first. Nazi MOVA continued to perform, including in a one-act pacifist work titled War Brides, which is only 35 minutes long, by the way, a fact I didn't know before the episode. I thought it'd be feature length. The plot revolves around a woman who has lost both her brothers and her husband to war, and who organizes a protest against the king's new order that all women must bear more children for the conflict. The play ends with her death by her own hand rather than submit to going to prison. It's about this time that Mercedes D'Acosta actually meets Nazimova, a backstage meeting that ends with Mercedes walking her home, though that sentence is left very vague, so use your imagination. Oh, walking her home, if you know what I mean. Like all of her affairs by this point and after, it is short, only three months, because the fake marriage to Bryant required a certain amount of discretion, which continued even after the divorce. On the other hand, at 37, Nazimova gets roped into the movies for the first time. For $30,000 plus a $1,000 bonus for each day the production went over the 30-day timeline, she agreed to make a film version of War Brides for Selznick Enterprises. By the way, it is a lost film. You can only find some stills of it now. This film version was a success, but its run was cut short by the U.S. entering World War I because any anti-war material was yanked from circulation. A large portion of her salary from this then went to help some poor dance students of Isadora Duncan's who got caught in the crossfire of an argument between Duncan and her rich lover Paris Singer, who had been footing the bill for the six girls' stay in New York. It's assumed Mercedes is the one who told Nazimova about this, as Mercedes was involved with Duncan by that point. After the film, though, Nazimova returned to the stage, which is how she met Eva Le Gallienne, another stage actress from this podcast and a member of the audience one night. When they first met, Eva described her thus, God, she is marvelous, not beautiful, but elfin, with a tremendous magnetism and no less powerful intelligence. Unfortunately, at this time, Eva couldn't join Nazimova's troupe, because she'd already committed to another tour. So that affair lasted on and off for three years and turned into friendship that would, among other things, encourage Eva's enjoyment of Ibsen and her company's productions of his works. By the end of the war, Nazimova was back in films. In one revelation, she played a cabaret singer, clearly a prostitute, who also works as an artist model. She gets painted as Cleopatra, Salome, Sappho, snuck into a convent dressed as a boy, and there painted as Madonna, and ends the film by leaving the Latin Quarter to go be a nurse at the start of World War I. That film was for Metro instead of Selznick, by the way. There's not quite the contracts yet that we see by the time of Gray Garbo and Marlena Dietrich. This just sounds like a wild film. I mean, talk about pre-code, right? Oh, yeah, I would love to see a remake. I don't think we'll get one. If we did, though, I mean, who would play the Nazimova part, right? Evergreen? Oh, yeah, one can only hope. Someone sent her this clip. She needs to do this. <laughs> After Revelation and a few other films, which all appeared in 1918, 
Nazimova left for L.A. and the nascent film industry after Metro agreed to her demands regarding her next picture. She would choose the subject and the scriptwriter, among other things. Wow, that is a lot of say-so here. Well, keep in mind, she has a lot of power because she was essentially their main star by that point. In fact, magazines called her the Actress of the Year in 1918, though that was more for the stage and Ibsen. For the next two years, she made three or four films per year because the production time for early silent films was really short compared to talkies today. She also created Nazimova Productions, which lasted till 1921, and under which she also did some script writing, costume designing, directing, editing, and producing. Wow, jack of all trades. During those first years in L.A., Nazimova encountered an aspiring actress named Jean Acker, whom you may have heard of as one of Rudolph Valentino's wives. Nazimova brought her from New York to a Hollywood hotel, got her a film contract at Metro, and had an affair with her. I mean, of course, we all knew that that third part was coming, right? Nazimova also bought a house and called it the Garden of Allah, which also became known as the 8080 Club, where women lounged around and in her pool during the weekends. Contrary to Hollywood legend, she did not stage manage the marriage of Acker to Valentino. She was actually surprised and angry it occurred. Yeah, he stole her girlfriend. Yeah, and in fact, she once called Valentino a gigolo and refused to even acknowledge his existence at a cafe before the marriage. Ooh, drama. In the meantime, there was also an affair with Dorothy Osner, who was still writing scripts and had yet to become a director. There was also Natasha Rambova, the other of Valentino's wives, and a costume designer. By the point Rambova showed up, Nazimova did agree to act in a film version of Camille alongside Valentino, who was eager to play opposite her. What, to rub it in? No, because she was the greater actor. And it's because of this film that Rambova, then involved with Nazimova, met Valentino and later married him, which miffed our protagonist quite a bit. Yeah, twice now? Come on, Valentino. <laughs> Bro code means nothing to you? And pretty much both times to women who didn't want him. Really? Yeah, like both marriages weren't consummated. Oh, were they just for show? Like, what's going on here? So the story goes, Jean Acker realized after the ceremony she made a terrible mistake. When it came time for the wedding night, the bride slammed the door in Valentino's face and refused to even talk to him for weeks afterwards. Dang, all right, wow. Now we come to the film adaptation of Oscar Wilde's Salome, which premiered in 1922. As stated at the beginning of the episode, every actor in it was gay or bi. How did this happen? Nazimova bankrolled it and was essentially the producer, director, and so forth. And at 42, she played the teenage lead. And the production was not at the time even described as a film. She called it a pantomime after the play by Oscar Wilde and said she conceived of it as being in the style of Russian ballet. In short, it was very experimental and some of the decisions would have worked better in a stage production. Many of the short-range shots and lighting break the immersion of the scene, 
There's also sequences that would have benefited from a choreographer. Some of the background characters also would have benefited from actors who would give more than a lackluster performance, but at least one was a friend of Nazimova's in need of work, so she cast them anyway. The whole production cost her over $400,000 of her own money by the time of the restricted theatrical release. Yeah, I bet it was restricted. Called one of the first art films created, it was a financial flop. You know, after your description of it, I am not surprised. And you can find it on YouTube. Don't mind if I do. Now, Nazimova did appear in three films released over the next several years through 1925, but it appears that she had shot her film career in the foot with that art film. It didn't help that despite getting a divorce for her first official marriage in 1923, her fake marriage with Charles Bryant disintegrated. Right, you said that he uh, ran off with someone? Yes, and this despite demanding discretion on her part and vowing the same. He ran off in 1925, blindsided Nazimova, and shocked the press because he also listed himself as single on the marriage license. He also took one of her apartments and a chunk of her money for himself. Oh, how sweet. The scandal that their marriage was a sham set off a bomb in her career because now everyone believed she'd been living in sin for about a decade, which was... A no-no for early film stars. It's so sad, too, because she can't be like, no, guys, I'm a lesbian, I promise, it's fine. For those of you who are confused, remember that there was a league against movies that laser-focused on Christian values in both films and the lives of the actors who made the films. So even though the Hays Code hasn't been established yet, this is kind of, this sense of moralizing everything is still kind of in place. Yeah, it was very much the social attitude, especially of small-town USA, coupled with the brunt of the disapproval falling on women rather than men in these situations. So Nazimova's career tanked alongside her bank account. By 1925, she could no longer financially back films. As a result, she returned to acting in Broadway plays and rented out the Garden of Allah, which she also took out a mortgage against in order to pay bills and partly to pay back Brian's back taxes to the IRS. Oof, wow, he really left her with some post-marriage gifts, didn't he? Yeah, and here's the kicker. She signed a fake agreement with him to do so back in 1918. This is the point where Acker wrote Nazimova and said, Where the woman is more successful than the man, there's always jealousy and friction in the house. I'm sure after your experiences with Mr. Bryant, you know what I mean. Oh, yeah. On the bright side, Nazimova joined Eva Logalian's Civic Repertory Theater and gained U.S. citizenship, so not even the IRS could deport her over any tax messes. Still, she wasn't making enough money and had to sell the Garden of Allah. 1929 brought a stable lover for her, though. Gleska Marshall also worked at Lugalian's theater company. Surprisingly, this affair lasted for over a decade and until Nazimova's death. Wow, so looks like things are looking up for her. And then there was the stock market crash. Oh yeah, 1929. Nazimova got lucky compared to some of her friends. She only lost half of her savings rather than all of it. By then, she had moved into a New York-rented apartment and was pulling away from Eva's stage productions. After one such play, Juna Barnes interviewed her in her dressing room. 
be honest, was Juna on your bingo card for this episode? Absolutely not. I love it. Anyway, Nightwood's writer thought Nazimova's performance is entirely and rightly splendid, a feeling shared by several critics across plays after she left Hollywood. So it's not as if Nazimova's acting at age 53 had taken a hit along with her career. As the 30s progressed, she went on tour. In fact, one night after the show, the people visiting Nazimova's dressing room included Irving Thalberg, D.W. Griffith, Marlena Dietrich, and other notables of the Hollywood industry. You see, she still had associates in the industry, and her own nephew became a film producer. Fun fact, First Lady Nancy Reagan was actually Nazimova's goddaughter. Wait, really? That's another bizarre cameo. Still, Nazimova was ambivalent about her own performances. She kept a diary in which she assessed each night's acting. For instance, she wrote, 31 curtain calls, but I know it is not good. 31? I think she may have combined at least two nights. Still, I mean, you know, if if I see like three curtain calls in a night, it's an exceptional night. So I think this has to be imposter syndrome. Like, because even if this is spread out over a week, like, oh my goodness. And you have all these notables coming and celebrating her. I don't think she's coasting. Of course, the feelings towards herself may have had something to do with when she went in for her own biopsy three years after her sister developed breast cancer, and Nazimova was fearfully certain what the result would be. She was right. She was diagnosed with breast cancer, and Josephine Hutchinson, the one-time lover of Eva Logalian in the 1930s, I feel explained Nazimova's feelings at the diagnosis best. She had always been so proud of her body, and in her late fifties, Nazimova's body was still fantastic, slim, and firm. The prospect of mastectomy distressed her terribly. It seemed like mutilation. Yeah, this sounds like a disaster. Now can you name the other woman of our podcast who felt the same? It's time for our favorite game! Name that cancer patient! (laughs) Um, no, I don't remember who this happened to. Sucks that it happened twice, though. Unlike Dolly Wilde. Oh my god, it was Dolly Wilde. Oh, poor woman. Nazimova actually underwent surgery to remove her right breast. Good. Important. Don't avoid it just because it's scary and bad. Now, unfortunately, in this case... The doctor breached patient confidentiality to tell his wife, who was a stage actress, and then a flood of condolence layers arrived at Nazimova's doorstep, and that led to depression alongside the treatment after the surgery, which consisted of removing a buildup of fluid in the area via a syringe. Oh, sounds like a lot of fun. This is also before the concept of, like, patient autonomy is really a major theme in like medical ethics. So yeah, you had a lot of this going around where doctors just kind of make decisions for their patients, like who should hear about their health uh, issues. On the upside, the cancer did go into remission and not return. Well, that's good, at least. Unfortunately, it took her libido with it and made her needy, which sent her lover, Gleska, on a bit of a power trip with playing secretary. 
1938, Nazimova returned to Hollywood, possibly influenced by letters from her film producer nephew. She actually rented a villa at her old house, the Garden of Alla. Now, she did appear in several talkies until 1944, but she never achieved the same level of success prior to Salome in the 20s. As we all know, women can't act past 50. They're never to be allowed on screen. Their hideous faces will disgust the audience. Unless you have a film producer nephew, perhaps? Yeah, well. I mean, thank goodness she's at least allowed in there, but it's it's just disgraceful how some of these women get robbed of roles anyway. These films you can still find and watch if you are so inclined. They include a remake of the 1920s Valentino film Blood and Sand, which I find a tad ironic. Yeah, after all that with Valentino. Still, she was quite content, though her lover now had a different lover, and Nazimova was contemplating moving out for her own space. Unfortunately, she began to have attacks of dizziness, which led to a diagnosis of coronary thrombosis. The translation from medical speak is blood clots in the heart, which adds a new layer to Nazimova writing, My Heart Was Born in a Deep Shadow, in her unfinished autobiography. Oh yeah, oof. Over the next few weeks, there were more attacks. The writing doesn't specify if they were heart attacks, but I don't know what else they could have been. She died in her bed on July 13, 1945, after losing the ability to recognize anyone 24 hours beforehand. There were a few small obituaries, and as Nazimova herself told an interviewer a few months before she died, I've reached the heights, but it's been a puny success. I could have done so much more. Yeah, I mean, you hear on the stage how powerful she was and how many people appreciated her work. I can totally see her going even farther. In fact, she deplored wasting seven years of her life as a silent film star when she could have been on the stage and not fake married to Charles Bryant or choosing the wrong film roles by directing herself. But in the end, I mean, how could she have known? She did the best she could with her circumstances and look where she started, my goodness. And then Gleska Marshall, her last lover, decided to bury Nazimova in the cemetery at Forest Lawn even though Nazimova disliked cemeteries and especially loathed Forest Lawn. Possibly she felt that Nazimova should be buried with all the big-name stars, but it just feels like an ignorant fuck you to me. Yeah, now it's it's so funny because Nazimova's like, I could have done so much more, why did I waste my time in silent movies? And then Gleska's like, yeah, let's waste more of your time with all these silent movie stars. But let's not end on that note. Instead, let's use Nazimova's own words. An actress is dead when the last person to remember her dies, and that's not enough for me. So by that metric, she's not quite dead yet. Yeah, and we'll keep on keeping her alive in our memories. Thanks for listening. Make sure to subscribe to us on YouTube or follow us on your podcatcher of choice for more stories of women in the arts. We also have a Twitter where you can find quotes and memes about your favorite sapphic artists. And remember, if you don't want to acknowledge that your aunt is gay, blame Eva Le Gallienne.